you ever noticed that in certain circles, there are things that we, we don't talk about, things that when we gather together socially or corporately, that they're just topics that we consider taboo. I don't know if this is true, but there's a story I heard once that I actually, I actually fell in love with it because it, it just makes a whole lot of sense and it kind of makes me chuckle. There was an executive that worked for Pepsi-Cola. Pepsi-Cola is the second-rate brand. We all know it. He worked for Pepsi-Cola, and in his household, it was taboo. You never talked about, mentioned, or even feigned interest in Coca-Cola. You just didn't do it. Now, of course, this executive was a husband. And if you're a husband, chances are you're going to do something stupid at some point to upset your wife. You know what I'm talking about, husbands. Don't, don't, I say all, all the wives I'm sure are sitting there kind of like, yeah, yeah, you listening to what the pastor's saying right now? This guy was no exception. And so when he would do something to offend his wife, he would indeed suffer her wrath. Like I said, he believed indisputably that Pepsi was the superior brand. And so Coke was never talked about. But when he was in the doghouse, what she would do, she would go to the store. She would buy a case of Coca-Cola. And she would leave it in the fridge for him to find. <laughs> I'm sure you can imagine the things that he said after the fact. The fun discussion that would arise afterward. It, yeah, it spurred conversation, but it probably wasn't the nicest conversation between he and his wife. As the saying goes, revenge is a dish best served cold. <laughs> the truth is that the executive ignoring his competitor really only hurt him. If you think about it, I mean, would Pepsi really be a successful brand, as successful as it is, even though it's not as successful as Coke, would it be as successful as it is if it completely ignored its competitor and everything that its competitor did? I think the answer is no. Now, I say these things because there is a topic that we in the church, most notably in the West, the West, meaning Western Hemisphere, you know, and not, not, well, maybe not just the Western Hemisphere, Europe and on into the Americas. There's a topic that we in the West, we don't really like to talk about. We tend to ignore it. We tend to discount it. That is spiritual warfare. Like it or not, the devil and demons exist. It's an unfortunate truth of our reality. The devil and demons exist, and they stand directly opposed to God and to his church. So I'm going to tell you a story about these demons from the book of Mark. I'm sure that many of you will recognize this story. It is after Jesus had crossed the Sea of Galilee. They came to the other side of the sea, 
the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, crying out with a loud voice. I'm going to stop there for a second. I want, I want us to have this mental picture for a second of him sprinting toward Jesus as soon as Jesus steps, sets foot on land, he sprints toward the Son of Man, and he prostrates himself. Sometimes we just see him kind of like on his knees or, you know, just looking up at Jesus. No, this man is terrified. And it says he cries out in a loud voice. Think about the kind of cries you hear from a child who's not getting away or cries of terror, like a loud, I'm not going to do it in the microphone, but a loud shriek. And here's what he says, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion. For we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down a steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Now, this passage serves to raise questions about the role of spiritual warfare in the Christian life. I mean, the encounter that takes place all seems to stand in contrast to the typical Western Christian experience. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I want us to think about it for a second. How many of us know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we have encountered demons? See, there are passages of Scripture that refer to demonic oppression that could easily be written off as what we know today to be mental or physical disorders. But there is no mistaking the demonic presence in this passage. They oppress this man, they recognize Jesus, and they plead, they beg before him. They're even given a name in this passage. I can't think of anywhere else in the New Testament, at least, where the demons are given a name. As a result, the Word gives us a sense of who this man is and who Jesus is. Now, in every spiritual battle, everyone that we encounter, there are three major players at work. There's us, there's the forces of evil, and then there's God. 
Truth be told, we're probably more like spectators than actual participants. We merely choose who to support. See, what we observe in the book of Mark, in chapter 5, is a man who is not just oppressed, or who is oppressed not just by a demon, but by many. Not just one, but many, a legion. But how did he get to this point? How did he become the man who lived in the tombs, wailed at night, cut himself, scared away the people from paying respects to the dead? Someone who was unable to be bound by shackles and by chains. How did he become this person? I mean, I highly doubt that the devil arbitrarily chose some random person in the Gerasene region to go and to afflict and to possess. In fact, I would say that there was a reason, a very definite reason. There are usually two kinds of people who encounter demonic oppression. Those who open themselves up to it through sin, and those who live in the righteousness of Christ that the devil wants to put a scare into. This, however, is not a sermon on oppression or possession. This is a passage on warfare. And in warfare, there's offense and defense. I don't want us just to think about defense. We spend so much time on defense. There is offensive. Now, lest we begin looking for the devil under every rock or try to give him credit for every bad thing that happens in our lives, we need to understand that Satan does not spend nearly as much time oppressing us with external demonic forces as we would like to believe. Scripture clearly shows us, shows us that we endanger ourselves if we are not on our guard. Peter, the apostle, tells us that we must be sober-minded. We must be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeing, seeking someone to devour. The devil is crafty, to say the least. He knows that it is far more effective for him to tempt us with desires that are already in our hearts. To poke and prod something that's already there. It's not really effective for him to bring up something that's not on our radar, something that we really don't care about. But he knows the forces of evil, they know the things we struggle with, the sins we wrestle against. Now, again, no, I don't want to show of hands, but how many of you have heard of or have read the Screwtape Letters? Fantastic book, C.S. Lewis. Yeah, fantastic. But it is, it is a correspondence back and forth between Screwtape and his nephew, Wormwood. They're both demons that are working to oppress a specific gentleman. And really, so much of the book is about just poking and prodding, figuring out where the areas of weakness are and tipping the scales. The devil knows to tempt us with things we already want. He merely tries to provoke us, helping us to feed that desire. 
See, this applies to all of us. We all have fleshly desires. It's the nature of being fallen humans. Ever since Adam and Eve took a bite of the fruit, sin has been something that is part of the human existence. We all deal with it. We all have sins that we wrestle against every single day. And Satan knows it. Even for those who do walk in righteousness, the danger is still very real. I mean, consider Jesus himself, who was the definition of righteousness. He was tempted by the accuser during a time of physical exhaustion. You remember the story, Matthew chapter 4? He's out in the desert for 40 days, hasn't eaten. He's been going for so long, and the devil comes along in a time of spiritual and physical exhaustion. Maybe not, maybe not so much spiritually because he's feeding on the Word of God. But physical exhaustion. The devil comes to him and says, here are the desires you have. I can give them to you. That's when Jesus comes back with that, that Word of God, the bread of life, the truth upon which he lived. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Lest we begin to believe that the devil only tempted Jesus once. He's stupid, but not that stupid. I believe that the temptation was relentless because the devil knew that if he could get the Son of God to fall, then his victory was assured. If he could get the Son of God to fall, and the entirety of history and beyond would be rewritten. But of course, Jesus knew where his hope was. Jesus knew who his father was. He was full of the word, and he knew how to combat the forces of evil. But Satan knew that Jesus was human. And being human means being susceptible to temptation, whether we are righteous or not. This is the nature of our internal struggle. This is the nature of the battle within us between the flesh and the spirit. For the desires of the flesh are directly against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to one another to keep you from doing the things you want to do. This is where temptation, even oppression by the devil comes in. This oppression by the enemy can take many, many forms. Too frequently, we, we associate oppression by the forces of darkness as possession. Don't believe everything you see in the movies or in the trailers. I really hope you're not going and wasting money on those movies. Don't believe everything you see there. The, the, the truth of the matter is, oppression can manifest itself in many different ways. Sometimes it takes the form of fear. How many of us have ever been afraid in our lives? Other times it takes the form of depression. Other times it can even manifest itself as a tremendous weight that we carry on our hearts. We can't even describe it. But we know that as we're walking about, there is just something that is weighing us down, and we feel like we can barely stand up. 
the discouragement. In whatever form it takes, the accuser's attempt to tip the scale for rebellion or its equally dangerous cousin, apathy. A.W. Tozer said it well in relation to spiritual warfare. He spoke, he spoke about it this way. He said, I think the devil knows that it is no use trying to condemn a forgiven and justified child of God who is in the Lord's hands. So it becomes the devil's business to keep the Christian's spirit imprisoned. He knows that the believing and justifying Christian has been raised up out of the grave of his sins and trespasses. From that point on, Satan works that much harder to keep us bound and gagged, actually imprisoned in our grave clothes. He knows that if we continue in this kind of bondage, we will never be able to claim our rightful spiritual heritage. I want to say that again. Our rightful spiritual heritage. Not something we earn. Something that God has given to us, has extended to his believers, whom he has called, whom he has chosen. Our rightful spiritual heritage. The devil knows also that while we continue bound in this kind of enslavement, this fear, we are not much better off than when we were spiritually dead. This is one reason why the Christians in today's churches are behaving like a flock of frightened sheep. So intimidated by the devil that we can't even say, Amen. Tozer goes on by saying, show me an individual or a congregation that teaches about spiritual perfection and victory, and I will show you where there is a strong and immediate defiance by the devil. You know what that means? That unless you are willfully living in sin, which hopefully if we are children of God, we are not. Unless we are willfully living in sin, when the devil comes and oppresses us so deeply and tries to depress us, tries to make us afraid, tries to imprison us in the grave clothes of our previous lives, when he comes and he tries to take away all hope, what that says to us is that he is afraid of what God is trying to do through you. How often do we talk about a devil who is afraid? We imagine the, the red pajamas, the, the fork tongue and tail and the pitchfork. Oh no, the devil is far more formidable of a foe, but he knows that when it comes to standing against the power of God that is in his people, not just the individuals, but the body that is in his people, he is terrified. That is why when these demons come before the, the feet of Jesus, they scream because they know they can't do jack squat. They can't do a thing 
because the forces of the devil are no match for the power of God. See, the, the, the big thing that I want us to get away from this message is giving the devil a face. I want us to see who he is for what he is. We don't need to be afraid, but we should be aware. You see, in light of these truths, it becomes that much more distressing that so many choose to deny the relevance of spiritual warfare. In truth, we don't talk about the work of demons or the forces of evil because we don't want to believe that they can affect our lives. But one of my favorite movie quotes of all time actually comes from a movie that, that uh, I believe was back in the 90s. And in it, the, the main actor, the lead, he says, he's in, he's in an interrogation with a police officer. The police officer is going back and forth. They're talking about a criminal, a criminal that nobody's really seen. They don't even know if he exists, but everybody talks about him in hushed tones. And this is when the person being interrogated, he comes back at the police officer and he says, you know, the greatest lie the devil ever told was that he does not exist. That's from a secular movie. The greatest lie the devil ever told is that he does not exist. If we try to deny the existence of the enemy or the potential potency of his attacks, will we ever be prepared for the battle that will inevitably come? It's not just going to come. It's going to come to our front door. There are no rules of war when it comes to the, the, the devil, the accuser, the forces of evil. There's nothing off limits to them. They are going to bring the fight to us. So this is about giving the devil a face. If we see our enemy, we can fight our enemy. And see, that's the truth. It's not about being on the defensive. It's not about waiting for him to attack us. It's about storming the gates of hell and kicking them down. You remember what Jesus said to Peter in Caesarea? He said, from now on, you are Petros, the rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church, and not even the gates of hell can overcome it. The gates of hell, that's a defensive structure. That's not an offensive structure. You know what Jesus was doing in that moment? He said, Peter, here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to give you a new name, and I'm going to give you a new purpose in life. I want you to be my warrior. I want you to go on the offensive. I, take, I want you to take the fight to the devil and knock his teeth out. See, this should make us angry. If you can't notice, I'm a, I'm a bit angry right now. This should make us angry that the devil has the gall to come up against the people of God. This should make us angry that the devil has the gall to resist our God. You know the best way to stick it to him? Live in the victory of Jesus Christ. 
Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Know the Word of God. Know your God. See, that's the big thing. We need to know our enemy. We need, to, we need to know and put a face to our enemy. We need to know and put a face to ourselves. But more than any of that, we need to put a face on our God. You know what that face is? Typical Sunday school answer. Shout it out. Jesus. There we go. That face is Jesus. Jesus is the face of God. That's why I don't want us to be hopeless. We don't need to be afraid to talk about spiritual warfare. Yes, there are demons all around. The forces of darkness constantly try to barrage the people of God. But we do not need to be afraid. We do not need to be hopeless. Their defeat is assured. Yeah, hallelujah is a good word for it. Their defeat is assured. See, all these things are meant to show us the very things that God has saved us from. See, the battle still rages, but the outcome has been decided, and God is the victor. As if there was any doubt, the work that Jesus accomplished on the cross was that final nail in the coffin of the devil. Jesus himself said, I have overcome the world. In this world you will have trial, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And the ruler of the world, the prince of the powers of the air, I have overcome them all. Praise the name of Jesus. So let's go back to our passage in Mark 5. Just a little reminder, what was the demon's response on seeing Jesus? It, not, it did not respond as somebody who had any hope of winning. In fact, it trembled at the feet of Jesus. It cowered. It shrieked in terror. It begged for mercy. How interesting. Jesus was and is victorious. And he has made us participants in that victory. See, if you remember Jesus' ministry, yes, all of it led up to the cross. But every step of the way, Jesus took time to empower his followers. He empowered the 12. He certainly empowered Peter, you know, that one that... He called the rock. There was a time in his ministry when he sent out 72 of his followers, gave them very specific instructions about going throughout the region and ministering in his name. And they came back, and they're giving him this glowing report. There are so many wonderful things that, you, that God's Spirit did through us, Jesus, and we're so grateful you have cast out demons before us. And Jesus says, behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents, on scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in the books of heaven. 
Do not rejoice that the, de the demons tremble before you, before the power of God within you. Rejoice that your hope is secure. That's a pretty stinking great weapon. Rejoice that your hope is secure in Christ. Now, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Do you believe this? I'm going to ask you again. I want us to, I want to hear it. Do you believe this? Yes. One more time. Do you believe this? Yes. Yes. Thank God. You believe this. If you believe this, then don't be afraid. Don't worry about what the devil can do to you. The essence of spiritual warfare is clinging to the truth of God and not allowing ourselves to be deceived by our flesh or by the enemy's lies. There will be affliction, though. There will be times when we wake up and the attacks of the enemy are so overwhelming and we are so depressed that we barely even want to get out of bed. But if we cling to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we cling to his name, there is nothing that the devil can do to us. We start to speak the name of Jesus, guess what's going to happen? He's going to flee like the coward that he is. There will be moments when the devil will try to tempt us with the desires of our flesh. He's going to try and be a little bit more subtle. There will be moments when we encounter the thorns in our side, the messengers of Satan who afflict us spiritually, mentally, emotionally, and yes, sometimes even physically. But we know who is victorious. The Lord has spoken to us this truth. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. This is the truth, that we are not victorious in our own right, but that we claim victory in Jesus. As a result, I implore you, as rightful children of God, claim what is yours in Christ. Claim what is yours. Use the weapons that he has given you to overcome the devil. You see, our arsenal is infinite in breadth and eternal in effect. The Lord has given us his armor and his name. So if you want to know how to fight the devil and his forces, use the armor of God. Exercise faith in the Lord and what he has promised. Be ready with knowledge and understanding of the word. Study it. If you feel like you don't know it, study it. Read it. You don't have to be a scholar. Remember, the disciples were anything but. They were tradesmen. They were fishermen. How many fishermen are we going to to ask Bible questions of? The trade is not necessarily conducive to long theological debates. It's not to put down fishermen. I want to be very clear. The point is that we do not need to be scholars. We do not have to have the pieces of paper that say our names on it. 
that tell the world that we have put in this many hours to become scholars. What we need is the Spirit of God. Be ready with the knowledge and understanding of the Bible. Claim the peace that passes all understanding. Fight the devil by bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit, letting love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, let all of those things permeate the very essence of who you are. Let them be the markers of your entire being. If you lack in any area, you know what the Bible tells us? Ask. Ask God who gives his spirit without finding fault. Ask God. He will give you the weapons. He will conform you to who he is. The final big weapon, name drop. Seriously, name drop. Speak the name of God with power and authority. Again, going back to the story, the demons cowered at the feet of Jesus. They begged before him. There is nothing that the enemy fears more than the presence of God. And his word tells us that we are vessels of his presence in the world. Since we, the church body, the body, all of us, serve as his temple. What we must do then is demonstrate the presence of God wherever we encounter the authorities, the powers of this present darkness. We do this in two ways. First, we speak and live in the name of Jesus. Use your prayer as a weapon against the devil. Pray offensively against the forces of darkness, not just defensively offensively pray against the forces of darkness the gates of hell cannot withstand the church of god that is empowered by god himself second we worship the lord worship is a great weapon in spiritual warfare it's not just the singing of songs singing is part of it but it's not just the singing of songs. It is the proclamation to God, to each other, and to the enemy who our God is and what he has done. Start telling our enemies. That includes our own flesh. Start telling our enemies how big our God is. According to scholar and author Dr. Stephen Siemens, when we sing praises to the Lord, when we read His Word, when we do what His Word has commanded us, and we pray offensively, our God becomes bigger. Not literally, but bigger to us. Maybe even a little bit in the sight of the devil. He begins to realize, oh, shoot. You ever see Back to the Future? Great movie. Another one. You remember the part where Marty McFly punches Biff and then Biff stands up and it seems like it's never going to end. He's just huge. I think it's the same thing. The devil tries to hit. He tries to come at us. God stands up. It's like, oh, crap. 
In essence, we remind ourselves of the greatness of our God to overcome our sin, our own weaknesses, and we remind our enemy of the imminence of his demise and the totality of his defeat that took place the moment Jesus said, it is finished. So as a means of concluding this message, we're going to proclaim to the devil just who our God is. We're going to recite the Apostles' Creed. So I want us to stand up. Don't just recite. Don't just read. Say it like you believe it. Say it like you believe it. Say it like you know this is a weapon against the enemy. I'm going to turn off my mic because I'm going to be yelling. Say it like you believe it.